This is a Parks Canada production. Ce balado est aussi disponible en français. Eighteen fifteen, Mount Tambora, southern Indonesia. The largest volcanic eruption in recorded history sent masses of ash and smoke billowing into the atmosphere, blocking the sun and dramatically altering weather patterns across the planet. One of Tambora's many effects was a change in ocean nutrients in the Bay of Bengal, causing a strain of bacteria to mutate and triggering a cholera pandemic that eventually infected millions around the world. 17 years later, and 12,000 kilometers away, the looming threat of disease prompted the establishment of an immigration quarantine station near the port of Quebec City on an island called Rose-Ile. I'm Fred Shepard, and you're listening to Recollections, the Quarantine Island. Parks Canada is known worldwide as a leader in nature conservation. But we do much more than that. Together with our partners, we commemorate the people, places, and events that have shaped what we now call Canada. Join us to meet experts from across the country as we explore the sites, stories, and artifacts that bring history to life. Not many historic sites can trace their origin stories to a catastrophic volcanic eruption. But then Gros Eel and the Irish Memorial National Historic Site in the province of Quebec is no ordinary place. Over its 105 years of operation, it was the gateway for more than 4 million immigrants on their way to new lives in North America. A landscape of great hope and great tragedy, and a response to public anxiety about newcomers, The story of Grosseal charts the evolution of medical science and technology punctuated by a series of deadly crises. And it all began with a pandemic. By 1832, cholera had spread across Asia and Russia and was wreaking havoc on Western Europe, the point of departure for most immigrants to North America. It was only a matter of time before the disease reached the bustling port of Quebec City, The search was on for a place to inspect and detain incoming ships and people to prevent the disease from gaining a foothold in North America. Grosseal was the perfect spot. 50 kilometers downstream from Quebec City, it was en route for ships arriving from Europe via the St. Lawrence River. It had a good supply of fresh water, and as an island, was naturally suited for keeping newcomers isolated from the mainland. Grosseil is French for Big Island, probably because it features Telegraph Hill, one of the highest points around. Tidal waters lap against its rocky beaches, and the scent of pine trees fill the air. It's a peaceful spot, but winters can be harsh with fierce cold winds. Evidence of indigenous presence on the island, like arrowheads, fragments of ceramic tools, and traces of fires, dates back to at least the 1200s. This region of the St. Lawrence River is part of the traditional territories of several First Nations who used the island as a fishing and hunting site on their travels up and down the river. 
Europeans began settling the St. Lawrence area in the early 1600s, and Grosseal was used as farmland for a couple of centuries. In 1832, with cholera anticipated on ships arriving from Europe, the government expropriated the land and directed the military to establish a quarantine station. Cholera is a bacterial infection spread by contaminated food and water that causes severe dehydration through vomiting and diarrhea. If left untreated, it can lead to death in just a few hours. Back then, it was fatal in up to 50% of cases. Today, with modern sanitation methods, cholera is much less common. And when outbreaks do occur, improved treatments and vaccines usually keep the death rate below 1%. Throughout the first months at Grosseal, workers hastily constructed several wooden buildings at the western part of the island to accommodate new immigrants, including a 48-bed hospital, a morgue, and a very basic quarantine shelter called a shed for up to 300 people sleeping in close proximity. There was also housing for the military and staff at the center of the island and a battery of cannons to force ships to stop for inspection. The majority of immigrants traveled by ship in cramped steerage class for the weeks-long journey from Europe. Disease, hunger, and seasickness took a toll, leaving many physically and mentally exhausted. To top it off, large vessels were unable to land on Grosseal, so passengers had to disembark into rowboats for the final leg of the journey. One immigrant described the turbulent waters as akin to a boiling cauldron, and at one point that first summer, several people drowned when a rowboat overturned. The passengers traveling in cabin class, the first class on transatlantic passenger ships, were of a higher social status and paid a premium for the luxury of space. On top of better accommodations and meals, cabin class had one major perk. These passengers were presumed healthy and could remain on board while the others completed their quarantine on the island. The English writer Susanna Moody, a cabin passenger, immigrated with her family in August 1832. Here's her description of Grosseal. A crowd of many hundred Irish emigrants, men, women, and children who were not confined by sickness to the sheds, were employed in washing clothes, spreading them out on the rocks and bushes to dry. The men and boys were in the water, while the women, with their scanty garments tucked above their knees, were trampling their bedding in tubs or in the holes in the rocks, which the retiring tide had left half full of water. The confusion of Babel was among them. We were literally stunned by the strife of tongues. As the summer progressed, the crowded hospital and quarantine facilities struggled to keep up with the number of arriving immigrants. Some healthy people contracted cholera while in cramped quarantine shelters. Others, who were contagious but not showing symptoms, passed medical inspection and carried on to Quebec City, leading to a cholera epidemic, the exact thing that Grosseal was supposed to prevent. It soon spread to Montreal and around North America. By the time the pandemic subsided at the end of 1832, it had claimed more than 3,000 lives in Quebec City alone. Over the next 15 years, authority for the quarantine station transferred from the military to the government, and facilities improved. The number of buildings doubled, with 200 hospital beds and accommodation for 800 healthy immigrants. 
In normal times, this was sufficient to house the new arrivals. But it wasn't enough to deal with the crisis that developed in 1847. Not even close. In the early 1840s, a fungus-like organism called potato blight began decimating potato crops across Western Europe. One of the worst-hit areas was Ireland, where a single potato species, the Irish lumper, was the main source of food and income for most of the 8 million residents. The huge loss of crops became known as the Irish Famine. Many of the starving, impoverished Irish farm families were unable to pay rent on their land. They were evicted by the English landlords, and many had no choice but to emigrate on the crowded ships bound for North America. Malnourished people are more likely to contract illness and infections. In early 1847, Grosseal's medical superintendent, Dr. George Mellis Douglas, warned his superiors to expect a greater amount of sickness and mortality. It didn't take long for his prediction to come true. A steady stream of coffin ships, so-called because of the vast number of sick and dying passengers aboard, began arriving once the ice on the St. Lawrence River had thawed. We spoke with Parks Canada historian Yvon Fortier about the coffin ships of the Great Famine. À partir de plusieurs ports. Ships would leave Ireland with real human cargo. There were ships with less than 10 square feet per person. People were stacked three or four rows high with minimal clearance. Many were already weak and undernourished prior to the trip. It was a matter of having one or two people on board who had a disease to transmit it to an overwhelming number of the others. The name coffin ships designates these ships with people dead and dying on their beds, left there because it required even more strength to throw them into the sea. Of the many diseases aboard the coffin ships, the most common was typhus, a bacterial infection spread by lice. It was also the most deadly. Ships packed full of immigrants arrived en masse, forming a line that stretched for kilometers down the St. Lawrence River. Workers raced to construct new buildings, but Grosseal was not prepared for the huge numbers requiring inspection, quarantine, and treatment. A letter dated June 1st, 1847, reveals the desperation. It was written by Alexander Mitchell, captain of the Argo, one of the ships waiting in line. Gentlemen, things are really getting worse. There is not one of my sick removed out of the ship. The only relief we get is to carry them to the grave, which is a daily occurrence. I have three corpses aboard and have more or less every day. We must now resign ourselves to our fate whatever it may be. There are about 35 vessels. All of the sheds and hospitals on shore are full of sick already. There are at least 12,000 passengers here. Eventually, the facilities on Gross Eel became so overwhelmed that immigrants who appeared healthy were sent straight to the mainland while the sick were treated on site. At first in hospitals, but soon in sheds and tents originally intended for healthy newcomers. One immigrant described what he witnessed as a child on Grosseal. I'm an old man now, but not for a moment have I forgotten the scene. As parents left children, brothers were parted from sisters, or wives and husbands were separated, not knowing whether they should ever meet again. The Journal de Quebec published an anonymous letter, likely from a nurse working in one of the hospitals. I cannot describe the horrors and misery I saw. At least 13,000 terrible cases of typhus, in addition to smallpox and measles. People died right before our eyes. The bodies were taken to the dead house in wheelbarrows. 
Throughout that tragic year, nearly 100,000 immigrants, the vast majority of them Irish, arrived at Grosseil. When the chaos finally relented, the toll was grim. 5,424 people had been buried in Grosseil Cemetery, many in mass unmarked graves. Thousands more died at sea and on the mainland. In the years that followed, disease outbreaks flared up and died down in North America and around the world, and the quarantine station remained the first stop for most European immigrants and travelers. 1867. 20 years after the Irish famine, the government of a newly unified Canada focused on attracting more and more European immigrants to satisfy labor needs and to settle the prairies and other lands taken from indigenous peoples. A network of immigration stations developed across the country, including Partridge Island in New Brunswick, Pier 21 in Nova Scotia, and William Head in British Columbia. These facilities allowed authorities to screen immigrants and to assist those granted entry with establishing new lives. We spoke with Dr. David Montaigne, an architectural historian from the University of Calgary, his latest book focuses on Canadian immigration stations. The importance of Grosseil continues after Confederation, but it becomes less important in a way to the immigration story and more important to other stories, <laughs> such as nation building. So essentially, Canada sees quarantine and controlling the immigration process as a way that they can regulate independently from Britain. Thanks to some leather-bound medical registry books in Parks Canada collections, we know that Grosseil processed many Europeans in this time period. Most came from England, Scotland, and Ireland, but there were also patients from Norway, Sweden, Portugal, Germany, and Italy as well. In 1866, a new doctor named Frederick Montizambert arrived at Grosseil, first as an inspecting physician, then promoted to the top job of medical superintendent in 1869, a position he held for 30 years, overseeing a major modernization drive. He arrived with a very strong presence. He is, in a way, the linchpin that changed and steered Grosseil in a completely different direction. During his tenure, Dr. Montizambert incorporated advances in medical science and technology to improve operations on Grosseil. He became an early adopter of germ theory, one of the most important medical developments of the 19th century. The idea that microorganisms like bacteria, invisible to the naked eye, can cause illness is widely accepted today, but was revolutionary at the time. Up to this point, the leading theories of why people caught diseases focused on the balance of humors, fluids like bile and blood, within the human body. It's based on the theory of humors, nature, temperature, or your organs. When there's an imbalance in the body, there's disease. This is Christine Chartre, a Parks Canada historian who specializes in disease at Grosseil. When we can restore that balance, health will be regained. So consider that vomiting, diarrhea, all that, it's nature manifesting the problem. Miasma, bad air or pollution caused by stagnant water, was another common explanation for illness before germ theory. Dr. Montizambert utilized the concepts of germ theory to make quarantine more efficient and effective by introducing disinfection procedures and medical labs and ensuring the ill were isolated 
to avoid infecting the healthy. At the end of the 19th century, we discovered the causes of many infections like dysentery, diphtheria, and other diseases. And we developed tests that could confirm which disease someone with, let's say, a fever, pain in the body, headaches, vomiting, diarrhea, etc. had. That was an advance in terms of treatment. Many of the buildings and machines constructed under Dr. Montezambert's leadership can be viewed at Grosseil today. We spoke to Margot Wright, a descendant of Dr. Montezambert, who shared some stories about his life and career. I am the great-great-niece of Dr. Frederick Montezambert. He sounds like he was a, a character. He certainly had a strong character and pushed for modernizing public health. Fairly early on, he actually got sick from his interactions with immigrants who were coming in. He got typhus and recovered, which was quite something because some of his colleagues, doctors who were vetting the immigrants, got sick and died. And perhaps because he was young and strong, he survived. After three decades at Grosseil, Dr. Montezambert was named Canada's first Director General of Public Health. He even managed to maintain a sense of humor. There's a lovely story at the end of his obituary where a friend of his, who I believe was the head of public health for the province of Ontario, the two of them used to go out for lunch uh, when he was working in Ottawa. And at the end of lunch, he would say, this inconsiderate government expects us to work between meals. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny. I think he was a smart man, an accomplished man, and he pushed for things that I'm glad he pushed for. I'm glad that he believed in modern science and that he wanted to make this country safer, not just for its own population, but for the immigrants who are moving here by insisting on public health and, and a modern approach to public health. So I'm proud of that. Dr. Frederick Montezambert is recognized as a person of national historic significance for his many contributions to medicine and science. To illustrate the quarantine experience, we'll follow the story of two immigrants as they arrive at Grosseil in the early 1900s. John Morris from England, traveling in first class, and Mary O'Leary from Ireland, traveling in steerage class. These are fictional characters, but we base their story on real experiences of immigrants. It's May of 1912. John opens the window of his ocean liner cabin for a breath of fresh St. Lawrence air. He spent the past 10 days in a first-class cabin, sleeping on fancy linens and feasting in the dining room with full table service. The introduction of steamship travel has drastically reduced the amount of time passengers spend at sea. Sick passengers have been found on the ship, and to everyone's dismay, a period of quarantine is announced. When a ship came over with immigrants from Europe, it would come up the St. Lawrence, and the doctor would come out from Grosseil and inspect the ship. So if there's any diseases on board, he would quarantine the ship and people would stay at Grosseil for whatever period of quarantine. After a short shuttle boat ride to the island, John takes his first step on Canadian soil. He's greeted by the Grosseil staff who usher him and his belongings to the two-story disinfection building. 
Looking back at the wharf, he notices the steerage passengers wearily stepping onto the quarantine island. One of them is Mary, who left her home in Ireland with hopes of a better life in North America. She's more than ready to be off this ship after 10 days sleeping in a cramped room filled with bunk beds. To escape, she spent most of her days taking walks on the deck. Once the passengers have disembarked, most to the disinfection building, while the obviously sick are taken directly to hospital, Grosseal staff quickly begin disinfecting the ship. As for the ships, instead of brushing them with soap, which could take forever, mercury bichloride would be used to disinfect, which makes it much faster and would allow quicker access to the port of Quebec. Mercury bichloride was the primary disinfectant used at Grosseal. It's good at killing microorganisms, but highly toxic to humans in anything but tiny amounts. It's not widely used today, where safer alternatives like bleach are available. After the bichloride wash, the interior is fumigated with sulfur dioxide gas to kill any unwanted stowaways like rats and lice. Before entering the wooden disinfection building, John, Mary, and the other healthy passengers place their belongings into numbered bags. Staff pack these bags into large wire mesh boxes and put them onto rail cars, ready for disinfection. A medical officer explains the process. First thing, your luggage and yourself must be disinfected. When you got off the ship, you separated your luggage into numbered bags. And at this very moment, those bags are heading to the steam chambers to be subjected to dry steam. The steam is then heated to 115 degrees Celsius to kill any forms of disease. Your belongings will be kept at that temperature for 40 minutes. Dry steam, also called saturated steam, is produced by superheating water. It contains less than 1% moisture, so it's more like a blast of very hot air than a steam sauna. The process works a bit like pasteurization, using heat to kill pathogens. The dry steam chambers are steel boxes, about seven meters deep, with tracks on the floor so the rail cars can be pushed in and pulled out. The medical officer explains the next step, a disinfecting shower. This comes in two stages. You can undress in privacy in the first cabin and then give us your clothes to disinfect in the steam chambers. After that, you'll enter the shower room for a 15-minute shower. The passengers are escorted to the shower room, where 44 steel stalls are divided by a wood floor corridor. Each stall has a metal door with chicken wire around the top to prevent anyone from peeping in on their neighbors. Inside, there's a shower head that sprays water from above, as well as three curved horizontal bars, which look like metal hula hoops lined with nozzles, each at a different height. Suddenly, the jets turn on, spraying their bodies from above and from the side with a mixture of hot water and diluted mercury bichloride. John appreciates the hot shower after a long journey, but Mary, like many of the steerage passengers, is a bit uneasy. She's only ever bathed in a tub with water heated over a fire. After 15 minutes, the showers end and staff return the disinfected clothing to disinfected owners. 
Once dressed, John and Mary are issued disinfection certificates and are reunited with their luggage. Medical staff inspect each immigrant for signs of disease and check for the telltale scars that show they've been vaccinated against smallpox, a legal requirement to enter Canada, championed by Dr. Monty Zambert. Mary hasn't had a smallpox vaccine, so the doctors give her the inoculation she needs to be allowed into Canada. Afterwards, they head to the nearby accommodations where they will complete the mandatory quarantine period with daily medical exams. On Grosseal, instead of dormitories, you have a third-class hotel, which is sort of shared rooms with maybe three or four people. You have a second-class hotel and you have a first-class hotel, which is relatively posh and resort-like. John's cabin-class ticket provides him with a private room in the first-class hotel, perched above the rocky shores of the island. The idea was really to maintain that first-class experience as much as possible, really emphasize the views of the river and the countryside from the hotel. There's a veranda across the front of the first-class hotel so people can sit out there and enjoy it as a resort. The first-class hotel is catered often probably by the ship's cook. On the ground floor, there's a big dining room where people would come down and, you know, the fireplace, full table service. Upstairs, there's more of a ballroom kind of space where, you know, leisure activities would occur. Mary walks to her third-class hotel and finds her bunk in the large dormitory-style room. There are no lounges or gathering spaces but she's able to go for walks to Telegraph Hill when she needs a break from the other immigrants in quarantine. Most people traveling in third class on the ships would never have had a hotel experience, so they weren't necessarily expecting first class resort experience. They never expected anybody to kind of serve them or take care of them. In the early morning of the fifth day of quarantine, Mary wakes up with a fever and discovers some small red bumps on her arms. She alerts the hotel staff, who call an ambulance to take her to a hospital on the other side of the island. Keeping the hospitals away from the hotels was part of the strategy to prevent the spread of diseases. A black horse-drawn carriage, Gross Eel's ambulance, pulls up outside her hotel. In a haze of dread and discomfort, Mary climbs in and awaits her fate. The ambulance follows the road across the island, passing by a guard post, a cemetery, and the village where the Gross Eel staff live with their family. There was a school, there were little chapels, all the things that you might expect in a village. Nearing the eastern end of the island, the hospitals come into view. As they approach, the ambulance driver rings a metal bell with a foot pedal to alert the medics to prepare for a new patient. A doctor gives Mary an examination and confirms her fears. She has contracted smallpox, probably due to exposure on the ship before her vaccination. Smallpox is an infectious viral disease spread from person to person, characterized by high fevers, body aches, and a painful rash of open sores, also called pustules, in the mouth and body. It's been tragically responsible for vast numbers of deaths throughout history and it decimated indigenous populations across North America after European colonization. Mary is taken to the smallpox hospital, a long building made entirely of wood, 
with large windows featuring river views. It's one of several hospitals and one of the oldest buildings on the island, dating back to the days of the Irish famine. White is the dominant color scheme for all of the surfaces inside the building. The buildings were whitewashed inside and out. Why? Because lime helps fight against microorganisms that get lodged in shingle roofs and in siding. Whitewash, also called lime wash, is a type of antiseptic paint that humans have used for thousands of years. To make it, limestone is crushed into a powder and mixed with water, then used to paint surfaces. Hello, welcome to the hospital number four. I am Sarah Wade, I'm the head nurse here on the station. You've been through the medical inspection on the boat with the doctors, probably checked your eyes, the color of your tongue, if you are having any fever, and if you have any swollen lymph nodes, which would be a sign that you are fighting an infection. But if you're here, it's probably because you are contagious with smallpox since we found cases on your ship. We bring you here and you'll be in the beds for two to three weeks, depending on how long you need to recover. Everything will be disinfected at the end, you, you as well, because even the powder of the pustules when they dry out can be contagious. Same as for the droplets of water in the air, that's the reason why you are not in the main hospital, isolated from other patients, because it is a very contagious disease. The nurse guides Mary through the hospital. It's an open ward, so all the beds are in a row. Typically, there it goes bed, window, bed, window, bed, window, so everybody can see each other. And there's lots of windows for cross-ventilation. So typically, they'd be quite breezy and cool. And there would be a nursing station at one end of the ward so the nurse could sort of survey everybody at once. They enter the last room, where Mary is immediately overwhelmed by the color red. The walls are red, blankets are red, even the windows have ruby-colored glass. The concept of the red room is similar to a photographer's dark room, which requires the absence of light to develop photos from negatives. Red light is perfect in a dark room. It's the closest you can get to full darkness while still being able to see what you're working on. In the smallpox hospital, all this red made the space more comfortable for patients with pustules on their eyes and eyelids, making bright sunlight unbearable. It may have also reduced scarring. For the next month, Mary slowly recovers. There's no drug therapy for smallpox, but the nurses provide cold water baths and cover her rashes with petroleum jelly. At her weakest point, she's given a liquid diet of milk, water, and barley and opiates for the pain. Meanwhile, at the First Class Hotel, John continues to wait, never developing any symptoms of disease. He isn't totally clear how long his quarantine period will last, and he's getting impatient. By the 19th century, most people are talking about a fortnight, so two weeks, but again, it's totally dependent on the situation. And then sometimes it might be longer. So for instance, if more cases start to show up, 
then you have to kind of restart the quarantine period so it can get extended and extended three weeks, four weeks, and so on. So it's really unpredictable, which needless to say, drove people crazy. <laughs> Once Mary has fully recovered, she continues on to the port of Quebec City by shuttle boat. John completed quarantine weeks earlier. Once you're done your quarantine, you go up to Quebec City where there's a building right on the waterfront, a pier building, similar to Pier 21 in Halifax, which survives. The one in Quebec City does not. And there you would go through your, again, medical and civil inspection. Your medical inspection at the pier building is much more, is this a healthy person who's going to be a contributing citizen? And then the civil inspection is, do you have a bit of money to get you started? Do you have maybe a job lined up or land that you're planning to homestead? Those kinds of more not medical questions. <laughs> so you pass through those things in Quebec City. After recovering from her ordeal, Mary opted to settle in nearby Montreal. For John, like many, Quebec was just another stopover on the immigration journey across Canada and the United States. John and Mary are fictional, but their stories are drawn from historical records and from the buildings and landscapes visible on Grosseal today. The voices you heard were historians and Parks Canada interpreters, not archival audio. As contagious diseases became less prevalent throughout the 1920s and 30s, the need for a quarantine station decreased. It hadn't been used very much for the previous couple of decades. So there's a few reasons. One, people are just generally healthier. There's medical inspections abroad now by the 1910s and 20s. So immigrants are having health checks done and physicals done before they even get on the boat. So there's less likelihood of disease. And then I think, you know, related to fewer patients, you also get fewer immigrants. There's a huge boom in immigration in 1910 to 1913. Then World War I hits, of course, there's no immigration. And it takes a few years in the 20s before immigration starts to resume. And by the late 20s, there's a lot more immigration going on, but it's nothing compared to the numbers before World War I and with people being healthier and so on. There's just not really anybody being quarantined at Grosseal. So there's some interesting debates in Parliament about whether to keep it open. And for a long time, they keep it open in some ways for the sake of the image. Like, we are protecting our borders still. But the reality is it's not being used very much. So ultimately, they finally decide it's not worth keeping it open. The quarantine station closed for good in 1937. In the following years, Grosseal became, among other things, an agricultural research facility and even a government quarantine station once more, but this time for farm animals imported to Canada. In 1974, Grosseal was named a National Historic Site, and in the 1990s, Parks Canada completed a massive restoration project that included renovating a chicken coop back into the smallpox hospital with the Red Room. Figuring out how to restore the facility was challenging because a fire in the 1870s destroyed many of the original buildings and most of the records. That's why those medical register books we mentioned earlier are valuable for immigration researchers. The thousands of immigrants who lost their lives at Grosseal and on the journey there have not been forgotten. 
In addition to the remaining buildings, there are two memorials and three cemeteries on the island today. A Celtic cross made of granite stands 15 meters above a rocky bluff on Telegraph Hill, in memory of Irish immigrants who came to Canada during the Great Famine. Erected in 1909 by an Irish fraternal organization called the Ancient Order of Hibernians, it looks like a standard cross, but with a stylized circle around the intersection point. Parks Canada added a second monument in 1998, a low wall of stacked stones, 10 meters across, encircled by a glass panel with the names of nearly 8,000 people who died at Gross Seal Quarantine Station over its century of operation. Yvon gave us a tour. If you fly above it, you'd see two distinct arcs of a circle, as if it were a Celtic cross. And the stones recall the character of the very old, practically Neolithic monuments of Ireland. Moving inwards, we walk through a passage that goes from east to west, depicting the arrival from Ireland. The passage towards the junction is meant to represent the rise of souls to heaven. The cemeteries on Gross Eel are the final resting place for many immigrants. The largest is known as the Irish Cemetery and was used until 1847. More than 6,000 people are buried here. Today, Gross Eel is a place of pilgrimage for people from all over the world a place to celebrate the dreams and aspirations of immigrants traveling to new beginnings in North America, and a place to remember those who lost their lives on the journey. Gross Eel and the Irish Memorial National Historic Site is open from May to October. You can access the island by boat from Berthier-sur-Mer, 45 minutes from Quebec City, or by plane from nearby Montmagny. Visitors can tour the disinfection building, the hotels, the village, and the smallpox hospital with its layers of whitewash and the striking red room. You can also pay your respects at the memorials and cemeteries while taking in the views of the St. Lawrence that Susanna Moody described as the glorious river. Nature lavished all her noblest features in producing that enchanting scene. Recollections is produced by Parks Canada. A big thank you to Yvonne Fortier, Christine Chartray, Dr. Jason King, Gabrielle Martel Carrier, Laura, Sean, and Reese Nixon. Thanks as well to Dr. David Montaigne, whose book, For the Temporary Accommodation of Settlers, Architecture and Immigrant Reception in Canada, is a great resource to learn more about quarantine stations across the country. For loads of extras, including a Google Arts and Culture exhibition with photos of the buildings, monuments and artifacts, plus maps of the island, check out the show notes or visit parks.canada.ca slash recollections. I'm your host, Fred Shepard. Thanks for listening. <laughs>